Welcome to the C3 Church Coffs Harbour podcast. We're glad you're here. We pray that you'll be blessed and encouraged by this week's message. Give God some noise this morning because he likes that. Um, thank you, gentlemen. Um, God, God is not a quiet God. He has moments of being quiet, but I don't think he minds when we um, make noise. Hey, thank you, worship crew. Doing an amazing job. You guys could grab a seat. Fantastic. Cool. It's good. You guys all right? Yeah. Yeah, cool. There's a vibe in the room. It's going to be good, though. We're going to have a great day. We're looking at... Um, I've always wanted to ask... And before I get the first question up there and we get rolling, I just wanted to have a bit of a preface and share some thoughts. Now, my role as, as pastor is, is to, and, and primary teacher in this church, is to, I guess, share what, what God has. And, and teaching into that. And, but this particular series, I wanted to sort of see what was stirring in all of our hearts. See where the, where the itches were that we could scratch this morning. Um, and we've had about 30 questions, as Anna said, uh, submitted already, and, and please feel free to keep them coming. Maybe we can make this like a 12-month series and just keep rolling, asking questions. Um, but, um, but I just wanted to, to say that, that I'm not going to be primarily just answering these questions based on my own opinion. Um, that could be problematic. Um, I'm going to be using a book called The Bible. Um, and this, this book, we believe, is God-breathed, God-inspired. Even though written by a man, we believe God used man to write his words to instruct us in this life. And so what we need to understand about God's word is that it, it is useful and helpful um, for every area of life. It, it's, the Bible says of itself that it is sharper than two-edged sword. And it cuts straight through to the, the heart of our being, even the, the intentions of our heart. And so I'm going to be using the Bible to answer these questions because I don't want it just to be about what, what, what I reckon. Because you probably don't care what I reckon. Um, we need to care what God reckons. And, and before I start any of this, I just wanted to, just to, to challenge all of us here today. How do you shape your worldview? Like, like Worldview is how we view the world. How we view life, how we view social issues, how we view people, how we view everything. We all have an opinion or a way of seeing things, a lens with which we see the world around us, and it's, it's formed and shaped by things you, that are external. We might shape our own opinion on things, but it is influenced by external things. So who or what shapes your worldview? Sadly, in today's day and age, probably unlike ever before in history, I think most worldviews are shaped by the media 
And we base our worldview off second-hand information that we haven't even done the due diligence of researching well enough ourselves, and we form these strong opinions based on somebody else's strong opinion. And so we're actually setting our foundation of our worldview on sand, not on rock. And most of us do it unwillingly. We will form opinions on things because we've seen stuff on Facebook or Instagram or we've read an article or we follow a Reddit thread and we just read stuff in there. And we've got to understand that everybody who writes something has a worldview. Everybody who has an opinion on something is based that opinion on, on their own preference. It's very rare that you'll see a journalist write an article from a non-biased perspective. So there's always a hidden agenda with everybody's piece of work that they're published to put out there for us to read. We just have to discern how it is we are shaping our worldview. Here's my greatest fear. We don't read this enough to shape a solid worldview that is based on rock, but instead we get so influenced by what entertains us in the media, we based our worldview on sand. Scripture is not meant to entertain us, it's meant to inform us and empower us. But we're so geared towards being entertained and feeling good that this seems like hard work and I'd rather just flag out and scroll on a screen and get my opinions from there. Can I encourage you not to do that? Let's, let's use media to entertain us and know that that's entertainment and not information. And let's go to the Word of God for truth. If we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, if we believe that God did create the world, then we should be going to His Word to inform us about how to live this life. You don't have to say amen, but you can if you want to. Come on. There's only one way to get the Word of God in us, and that's to get in the Word of God. It's really easy. I don't know enough Bible to get into it. I, I don't hear the voice of God. Well, that's because your Bible's closed. If you open the Bible, you will hear the voice of God. Not audibly, but God speaks primarily through his scriptures. Can I get someone to grab me a bottle of water if that's all right? Um, I'm getting a little bit parched. So a few questions. Oh, thank you, Emmy. You're a champion. Yeah, can we thank Emmy? What a wonderful job. She just picked it up like it was nothing and, and took the lid off and... You're the real MVP. Question number one. Is that okay? Is it a little preface? And the other thing I want to say too is um, there's some really hyper-zealous Christians that just want um, me in particular to have really strong, authoritative views on stuff. And then sort of like get up here and just like smash home runs. And go, yeah, take that, those who don't believe. Of things, I'm going to read God's word and let the Holy Spirit shift hearts and minds. Because I can have a strong view on things, but my strong view on things is not going to trump the grace I have for you if you disagree with me. And so I don't, I don't expect everybody. going, you know what, we might not see eye to eye on these particular things, but we can still be friends. We can still hang out. We don't have to have this awkward air of tension between us, which is exactly what the world cannot do. As soon as you oppose to somebody else's worldview, you hate them according to their standards, but that's not true. 
We can have a difference of opinion and disagree completely on something but not hate each other. We can respectfully disagree. That's actually a thing. So let's, let's make a decision today that if we don't disagree, we can do so respectfully and we can still be friends and we can be happy and move on and have a latte after the service and get a haircut together. <laughs> Question one. We'll start light. We'll get heavier. Why did Jesus say... Oh, hold on, quick, take that off, take that off, take that off, take that off. Take it off. We're giving them too much. That's all five. We're only giving them one. Because then they'll read ahead and go, oh, I can't wait for question three. So scrap that, scrap that, scrap that. I'll just read it out. Leave that. That's good. We can't handle five. We just handle one. We can handle one. Why did Jesus say not to tell anybody about what he just did? You read passages in Scripture through the Gospels of Jesus healing the blind, healing the mute, um, healing the sick or the leper, and he'll say to them, hey, shh, don't tell anybody what I just did. Have you ever read that and go, why did he tell them that? Because other passages say, go tell everybody, spread the good news. The whole uh, mantra for the Christian faith is to go into all the world, proclaim the Gospel, make disciples. But then here Jesus is performing miracles. That's just between you and I, buddy. Why? I find that fascinating. For me to give you a definitive answer would be pure, pure speculation because Scripture just doesn't say. It doesn't give us the answer. So we have to sort of read into texts and have a look at what's going on and look at context and, and I guess have a, a snapshot at the bigger picture of what Jesus' ministry was all about to maybe perhaps give us an indication of why perhaps he would have said that didn't come to this earth to perform signs and wonders and miracles. That wasn't his mission. That wasn't his ministry. That was a byproduct because he was the son of God and he was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. So, but his primary mission was not to come in here and I'm going to heal this person. I'm going to raise that person from the dead. I'm going to, you know, give sight to them. That was not his primary mission. His primary mission was what? To declare the kingdom of God to teach about the kingdom of God. So perhaps what we could conclude is that Jesus would tell certain people, hey, listen, let's just keep this between you and I because we don't want to whip any of this township into a frenzy and make it about something that it's never meant to be about. It's about advancing the gospel. It's about telling people about who the true one, God, the one true God is. And I don't want to get that tainted by people just wanting to chase a show or a feeling or get caught up in the hype of what my ministry can potentially do. And I think still to this day, we see pockets of that in the church where people are chasing the signs and wonders and the miraculous and the, the fanciful and this awesome stuff for the feeling, for the whatever it is. But, but we're all about the gospel, the good news about Jesus setting people free, Jesus taking dead people spiritually, making them alive again. So perhaps that's one reason was just to sort of not whip people into a frenzy about Different things, and the other thing we could possibly see too is, is that it also would create space for Jesus to get adequate rest. That if there wasn't this huge crowd pushing on him all the time with all these demands, he could get the rest he wanted. We see oftentimes that Jesus would uh, reserve himself, pull himself aside, and and just rest and recover and recuperate because ministry is exhausting. When you minister to people, you are pouring out of who you are, your spirit into their spirit. It can be quite exhausting. Yeah, but you just stand up there and you talk for 20 minutes a week. That's all you really do. But it's exhausting. (laughs) But I get it. And if you've ever ministered...
principle of the Sabbath is so important for Christians to get that it's not a religious rule to follow. It's a gift that God gives us to get the rest we need to be effective for what he's called us to do. So Jesus would retire and rest. And, and we see how exhausting ministry can be because Jesus ministers to a large crowd of people. He hops on a boat and falls asleep and a massive storm blows up and he still sleeps through the storm. That's how exhausted and tired he was. So perhaps he tells people to shh and don't say anything so that he can be about the primary mission he's about, about helping people and also to be able to get a break from the, the throngs of people so he could do what he's called to do. Maybe I'm wrong. That's just some thoughts we see from Scripture. Number two, what is the Bible's views on tattoos? Ooh. Keep in mind, your whole career hinges on this. What does the Bible say about tattoos? Is it a sin for a Christian to get a tattoo? I would say, simply, no. I don't believe it is. Others would say, but hold on, hold on, Leviticus. Leviticus 19, you shall not mark your bodies for the undead. It's a sin. Well, look, that's, that's awesome. And that, that's true. Um, but here's a couple of problems I have with us using that passage in Leviticus. See, Leviticus primarily outlines the parameters and practice of worship for the believing Jew in the Old Covenant system. That's what the Levitical law would do. As Christians now, we are no longer obliged to live under or keep all the precepts of the Levitical law for Jesus Christ... ...for those who believe and have faith in him. So we're quoting a Levitical law that no But for some reason we like to be pharisaical and we like to be super religious and, 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 and hold our nose higher than other people and cast judgment on people rather than actually show grace and mercy to people like Jesus did. So we will find these obscure Old Testament passages, which first of all, can I just say, when it comes to Scripture, we've got to learn to know what is prescriptive and what is descriptive. What is describing an event in history or what is prescribing a way of living? When we decipher what passages are in which category, it helps us to know how to live this life the way that God instructs us to live this life. But we don't do that. We, we inform ourselves with all these third party. Anyway, I'll just move on. So it's Levitical law. The second thing is when you read that very same passage in verse 27, it would mean that every bloke that sat in that chair this morning is committing sin because we can't trim our beards. And I've got a barber in here this morning to commit sin in the house of God. It's probably not going to end well for me. But that, in that same passage it also says not, not to wear garments of multiple different types of thread. It's got to be of the same, like, who's got polyester on this morning? 
so it's sort of problematic to, to cherry pick these scriptures to highlight your There is contention around the actual translation of the word tattoo in that passage. Um, we do know that way of honouring uh, the dead who had fallen before them to appease pag- the pagan gods of death. So it wasn't artwork like we would know tattoos. There was a practice that had slipped into Jewish culture that the Levitical law was trying to cancel out by saying, hey, listen, don't cut yourselves like the pagans do to appease a pagan god. That is a, a false god that, that they're trying to appease. No, no, there is the one true God. Don't do that stuff. Don't let that slip into the people of God. So the, the tattoos that we talk about today are not, like, I've, I've got a few tattoos, but, but I've not got them to honour a pagan god or to appease a pagan god because of dead friends or relatives of the, of the past. So it doesn't mean the same thing today as it meant then. Um, you could even go so far as to, to, to expand it out to go, well, hold on, well, where do you draw the line with permanent and temporary marking of the skin? Is, is painting a child's face at, at a fate considered sin because they are marking their bodies? Is, is ladies putting on makeup a sin because they are marking their bodies? Is getting a stamp at the bank with a little smiley face saying, have a nice day, a sin because you are marking your body. How far do we take this out? I would say, at the end of the day, the fact that we are no longer under the Levitical law, we are under the law of grace and Jesus Christ. And there's nothing really under this new covenant that we see with Jesus that would say otherwise. But in saying that, I think my pastoral advice would be, when it comes to tattoos, we need to show wisdom. So tattoos are expensive. And God calls us to be good financial stewards of what he's entrusted to us. So if we can't afford something for the sake of looking cool to somebody else, people that don't need to be impressed. The other thing I would say is, well, what are you going to get tattooed? Like, there's some people that they... They know that I, I enjoy tattoos and, and they know that Cameron and I are friends and so um, they, they will go, oh, Justin, you got this tattoo, show me. They, they go, I want to show you. And I have a look at it and I've got to pretend that I really, really like it. <laughs> wow, look at the colouring of that particular tattoo. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. Why didn't, why didn't you ask me before you got that? That's stupid. But it's fantastic. It's so good. Too late now. Make sure if you get a tattoo, like if you don't want to get a tattoo, don't get a tattoo. But if you're going to get one, can you afford it? What are you going to put on your body? Because it's going to be there forever. You know, like my tattoos have meaning. They're usually scriptures or symbols or something of my faith. I love Sean Loon's sleeve tattoos as, as a meaning behind that. Go and talk to him about that afterwards. Um, and I think location would be an important factor to consider too. Like no one wants to walk around looking like Mike Tyson. Just, just put that out there. <laughs> weird if you've got a face tattoo no judgment though no judgment to you good on you that's great um, question number three here we go I say that just in case Mike Tyson's here and um, I'm just so scared of him so scary 
That's number three. What is the eldership slash deaconship structure of C3 Coffs Harbour? Good question. Um, so what I'll say about this, and I'll show a little graphic in just a moment, but... Um, three years um, has been retweaked and, and shuffled around in, since the start of this year. And so we've um, made a few changes to different people and different situations and different structures. Um, but uh, I'll just put it on the screen. This is what we're currently working with, um, just so we're all really clear. Uh, Anna and I, um, not... Technically, we should flip it upside down and we serve all those people and put them above ourselves. But for the sake of clarity, we're going to go with this one. Um, so for us, we have three strands of support around us that help us lead this place super well. And those three categories are our C3 Australia Oversight. And so they look after us on a personal and a leadership level with, with regards to our support um, from C3 Australia. We have a support crew um, who help us with the ministry and spiritual support. I guess you could call them like an eldership in the church so there's uh, seven of us in that group uh, that help uh, make us help us with decisions around uh, ministry and spiritual support we also have a financial board uh, there is five of us on that board and they help us with the financial and compliance support of our church to make sure that um, we are managing the funds well that we are multiplying the funds that we have in this place and we are also compliant with the regulations that are um, required of us as an organization and then underneath all of that uh, are the five key areas of our church, the services, the events, the people, the administration, and the charity, which is facts. And so you can see under all of those categories where different things flow. Uh, and so we're just in the process now of then writing job descriptions for every single one of those roles, uh, meeting with leaders, seeing if people are in the right places um, and, and need to shift around and do different things. Um, but what we've come to realize after six years of senior leadership is that the church is a living, breathing organism. It is not a, uh, a set-and-forget organization that just does its thing, that it constantly, almost week-to-week, month-to-month, it is changing. People change from roles and things, things happen. So we have to be constantly thinking about change and being adaptable to change. And so um, we are in the midst of change by implementing all of this structure at the moment. So um, that's a little snapshot of what we've been working on over the last few months to bring greater clarity to what we do as an organization. So... Um, yeah, that's just a simple question, really. So there you go. Um, question four. Um, what are your thoughts on the millennial reign when Jesus comes back to reign in Jerusalem? So this is like the second coming of Jesus. Um, this, this is a, a major area of, of Christian theology that is, that is hotly debated and discussed. Um, they call it eschatology, the, the end times of Jesus' return. Um, it's, it's confusing, um, it's contentious and all those things. Um, and and you know, a lot of arguments are shaped around the book of Revelation. Is the book of Revelation figurative or is it literal? Should we take it exactly as it is or is it painting a picture of something that's metaphorical in a sense? Well, all those questions need to come into uh, into into play. Um, however, I, I don't know that anybody has a firm grasp on a clear answer to the, the exact black and white when Jesus will return, how it's all going to happen. But there are four things that the 
born-again believers would agree with and would attest to, and they are these four things. That Jesus will return physically to earth one day. The Bible is pretty clear that, that he will. He'll return. Secondly, there'll be a bodily resurrection of all people who ever lived. That's crazy, but that's in Bible. Three, my favorite one, Satan will be defeated and constrained forever. Yeah, you should get excited about that. That's pretty cool. That's pretty good. Um, old hairy legs, gone forever. Number four, there will be a final judgment in which believers join Christ for eternity where non-believers are separated from God's presence. Sobering thought. How this occurs, when this occurs, where this occurs, we simply have no idea. And to answer that would be pure speculation once again. But they're the four things that we do know from Scripture. this for certain is not to try and I think so many people try so hard to, to get the, the facts and the, the details sorted but really at the end of the day what we're called to do is not worry so much about how that's all going to play out. Jesus himself doesn't even know the time or the hour. He's just going to wait for, for the Father to go, hey Jesus sub in, it's time to go, let's, let's do this let's redeem humanity, let's fix this once and for all. But what we can know in the meantime is to live ready just live ready That way you know you're ready. Jesus is Lord. Everything else isn't. And we live our life for the glory of him and the good of other people and ultimately our joy as a result of those things. And we have those three things in order and in priority, then we're living ready. And so if Jesus comes this afternoon, we're ready. If he comes in six months, we're ready. We live ready. We choose to live ready. We don't choose to let the cares and concerns of this world dominate us and we live less than. We live more than conquerors because of Christ who lives in us and so we can be ready for whenever he returns. And so it takes the pressure off. Oh my gosh. Oh. Anyway. Thanks, Pete. Mm. Oh gosh, five. We're out of time. I'm not going to be a coward. Um, what does the Bible say about abortion and termination? Major issue in the social climate of 2019. Um, state government, I'm not sure if they've finalised. They haven't? They're still uh, Semi? Yep, they're trying to make it more accessible. Um, I did see an interesting meme the other day, and I'll probably butcher some of the details, but you get the point. It was like, if you, um, if you were to destroy a bald eagle egg, you'd get a $100,000 fine. If you were to destroy a turtle egg, you'd get, but you actually get health benefits if you destroy human life pre-birth. So, it's tricky because it's real. It's tricky because it's, it's a complex issue. It's tricky because it brings so much potential shame and, and unlocks a lot of hurt in people's lives. And, and I think this is one of those issues I talked about before where I could have a really strong opinion on people want me to go hard on it, just go hard. But by going hard can make the person who might have gone through one of these procedures feel like they're, they're so...
incredibly hopeful is, is that Paul, the Apostle Paul, who we base most of our theology and New Covenant doctrine on, what does he say in regards to sin? I am the worst of all. Yet God's grace was poured out. He didn't just, he didn't have an abortion. No, no, he executed and murdered Christians and ordered them to die. People who were God-fearing good people. He didn't like it. And he would, so he says, I, I'm the worst. So, tissue. Um, the first question is, why should we value life? Well, Psalm 100 verse 3 says that know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. This is why we value life, because God freely gives us life. But now, O Lord, thou art our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. And all of us are the work of your hands. Isaiah 64. Well, who is the creator of the preborn? Well, Psalm 139 says, You were formed, you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. Skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, your eyes saw my substance, being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. Psalm 139. Jeremiah 1 5. For I formed you in the womb, I knew you before you were born, I set you apart. God has a purpose before any of us even exit the womb. Are the preborn human beings or are they just a bunch of cells? Well, I love Luke's um, recollection of the gospel. He talks about when um, Elizabeth and Mary, the cousins, uh, met and they were both pregnant, Elizabeth with John and Mary with Jesus. And what does it say when they first met and, and the two pregnant ladies collided. What does it say about Elizabeth's womb? It says that John leapt with joy in his mother's womb. Are they human beings prior to birth? I'd say as much as a bald eagle is lost on the egg. Luke 2, 6-7. The Lord Jesus began his incarnation as an embryo, growing into a fetus, an infant, a child, a teenager, and an adult. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. Our, our Savior, our Lord, our God, Jesus, entered this world as a fetus that grew and was formed inside a womb in an embryonic sac just like all of us. Was he life 
prior to birth? I would say yes. Who is responsible for life and death? Deuteronomy 30 verse 19. Then God spoke, to all, these, spoke all these words saying, You shall not murder. He says, I call heaven and earth to, re- to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that both you and thy seed may live. Should a child who might be born this is yeah anyway Exodus 4 so the Lord said to him who has made man's mouth or who makes the mute the deaf the seeing or the blind have not with a disability just because somebody might be born with one of their senses missing does not make them subhuman does not make them not created by God does God make mistakes no well how do you justify people with disabilities I don't know but scripture says that even God creates the mute, the blind, the deaf. And any defect that any in his image. And there is a purpose and a plan for that life that probably is greater than you and I could ever comprehend in a limited intellect and understanding. But what we do know is that we don't have the power of life and death. That is only God's power. We have the power to create. He has the power to cease. That's why we can choose to make babies. We can choose to, uh, to follow him and, and, and have our life saved from separation from him. But we don't choose death. That's not our decision to be made. Should, her, should a woman view her body and the preborn life growing in her womb? Or how should a woman view her body and the preborn growing in her womb? Children are a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God with your body. So here we can see, again, this is not my opinion. I'm not pushing my opinion. I'm just trying to help us draw out of God's word what's in there. That life comes from God. And that we should not make decisions to end life regardless of circumstance. And I know there's a lot of nuance. I know there's a lot of, oh, but what if? And what about this? Well, I'm not going to get caught up on semantics. I'm not going to live my life by the exception. A a possible, plausible, perhaps uh, exception that in reality would never come to pass. Because a lot of the agenda in the media today that is pro this sort of stuff 
hinges on an argument that is less than 0.00% likely of happening. Yet the whole, whole argument is hinged on that small fraction of a percentage. This is the exception when the exception happens. And here's the big one. What if I've had an abortion? What if I've gone through with a termination? Ephesians 1 verse 7. In Him, in Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Stop thinking of forgiveness of sins like, oh, I stole a lolly when I was five. Or I told a Imagine. The richness of his grace can delete even the harshest of sins when a true repentant heart is submitted before the Lord. Isaiah 43, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Here's the thing, and I'll finish on this. Our, our whole worldview, if you like, our whole Christian faith system, it's it's hinged on forgiveness. That's what it's all about. That's the whole reason that you and I, if we call ourselves a Christian today, is because of that. Nothing we have done. It's the free gift of righteousness through faith in Christ because of what he did on the cross for us. It's so that none of us can boast. It's so that none of us can go, hey, I'm awesome, God loves me, I'm a child of God because like, I'm totally mad and sick. No, no, no. You were mad and sick and he forgave you in your madness and sickness so he could call you a son or a daughter. That's how it works. Nothing that you've done of yourself. Yet, oh, can I say this? Too bad. Why do we elevate ourselves above God and not forgive others when he himself forgave us even of our darkest deepest transgressions yet we will hold something against somebody else and undermine the very thing that underpins our whole relationship with God no, no wonder Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 if you don't forgive other people my father heaven's not going to forgive you because you are undermining the very thing that our whole, the whole kingdom of God is, is, is hinged upon. So we should be agents of grace, agents of mercy, agents of kindness. Flip, hey, why don't we just be people who have the fruit of the Holy Spirit evident in our world? Wouldn't that be a good thing to do? So when we come across people who have strong opinions that are different to us, we can still love them. We can still show kindness. We can still show goodness. When it comes to people who are, who are active in a lifestyle that we disagree with, 
we can still disagree with them, but we can still show them kindness. We can still show them compassion. We can still love them. Because it was it not for God, then the very things that we are now opposed against would never have been forgiven. So doesn't it stand to reason that we should model the very grace that was freely dispensed for us to those around us? That's what being Christ-like is all about. We don't have to agree, but we do have to love. We do have to show grace. We do have to... Justin, I've, I've, I've done that. I've been there. I've, I just can't forgive myself. Well, God's forgiven you. He set you free. How much longer are you going to torment yourself with guilt and shame? Because God doesn't forgive you, then give you a guilt and shame period to earn that grace back. Like when he forgives you, forgiven. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In a moment. Repentance is instant. It's one of the few things in the kingdom of God that are instant. Sanctification takes a process. Justification takes a moment. By faith. So we'll be forgive ourselves so that we can be quick to forgive other people. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you so much for every single person here today. I thank you, Lord, that we would just have a deep understanding of your grace, of your mercy, of your goodness, of your kindness. And that they'd be the type of things that we would, we would want to emulate in our world. That we can have strong opinions against certain things. We can stand for certain things. But Lord, ultimately, we just want to stand for you and making our life glorify you, that we'd act in, in such a way that you'd be happy and joyful with the decisions we make in our life because those decisions ultimately would be for somebody else's good, for blessing other people and not being about ourselves. And that as we give, as we are generous, as we live outward focused, our joy would be... And we'd be quick to forgive other people, quick to forgive ourselves because we realize that you are not just some Lord in the sky who is demanding people worship him, but you're a, you're a father, a loving dad who wants the best for his kids. So Lord, I pray that we would want what you want, that we would want the best for other people. Help us to, to love what you love. Help us to want what you want. agreement about different things that's okay let us choose to be mature in our disagreement and Father I pray that you would just challenge all of our worldviews this morning about where we get the information that shapes our worldview what are the voices that we're listening to that shape the way we think challenge any cynicism that creeps in that steals our joy And help us seek out voices of truth and hope that bring life to our mind. And Lord, we thank you as we close for your word. 
that it is the truth of God. The way for which our life should go. God, would you bless us? Would you be with us? Would you bless every dad today? Keep us safe. Let us have fun today. And Lord, for those of us who didn't get breakfast in bed, may we get lunch and dinner in bed. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the C3CH podcast. We trust this week's message inspired and encouraged you. We hope to see you in one of our services soon. For more information on C3 Church Coffs Harbour, visit www.c3ch.com.